Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. Fasting has been used for thousands of years and is considered one of the oldest therapies in medicine. Many of the great doctors of ancient times have recommended fasting as a method of healing and disease prevention. Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, believed fasting enabled the body to heal itself from disease. Fasting has been shown to cause weight loss, improve metabolic health, and even extend our lifespan. Many diet plans advocate not eating for 12 to 24 hours. Some even recommend fasting for days at a time. Dr. Alan Goldhammer is with us today to end all the confusion on how we should fast, how long, and the best time of the day to do it. He'll also discuss the types of foods that we should add back to our diet when we break our fast. If you're starving for information on the right way to fast, you're in the right place. Don't go anywhere. It all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest is an osteopathic physician, doctor of chiropractic and founder of True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California. He's seen thousands of patients experience amazing health benefits from therapeutic fasting, many that were suffering from life-threatening diseases. He was a principal investigator in two landmark studies on water fasting to treat hypertension. In addition, he's the author of the Health Promoting Cookbook and co-author of the best-selling book, The Pleasure Trap, Master the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. Welcome to the show, Dr. Alan Goldhammer. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. You know, for decades we've been told it's better to eat several small frequent meals throughout the day for good health and to lose weight, and advocates of this intermittent fasting diet say that's not true. Share with us the benefits of starving the body instead of feeding the body. Well, first of all, there is a difference between starving and fasting. So fasting uh, refers to the period of time where there's still labile nutrient reserves available. So there's enough micro and macronutrients available, but you're withholding food. And starving happens after you've fasted so long that you've depleted those available reserves, and now you enter into a a process called starvation, which is really uh, very detrimental. So we don't recommend starving. We do recommend fasting. And we recommend that everybody fast every day. In fact, everybody does fast every day already. They, they have their final meal in the evening, they go to sleep, they wake up, and they break that period of time, that fast, with, with breakfast. And uh, maybe that's where the name uh, originally came from. The only question and debate right now is how long should that fasting period be between fasting and feeding? And what we recommend for people that are trying to maintain or lose weight, that they extend that fasting period so to anywhere between 12 and 16 hours a day. So in other words, a person would have the final meal at least three hours before they went to sleep. They would fast, and then they might delay their initial uh, meal in the morning. So there's been a period of between 12 and 16 hours. And even that brief amount of fasting time is thought to induce changes that cumulatively uh, may be very beneficial. And this type of intermittent fasting has become more popular as people are struggling in order to maintain uh, better weight control. Yeah, I love the clarification on fasting and, and starving the body. What about that window? I know, you, you, do you advocate skipping breakfast? You know, some people say, you know, eat, don't eat for 12 hours. Some say 18. And there's the one meal diet now that advocates eating one hour a day. What's your opinion? I love, I love breakfast. I love that first meal. Do I need to skip that and begin at noon? Is that the best way to go? 
I don't think it's a question of skipping uh, breakfast, but in, uh, depending on if you're on a 12 or a 16-hour fasting uh, uh, window, uh, you may delay it. Uh, there is evidence that uh, uh, up to 16 hours a day uh, of fasting uh, may uh, be kind of in that optimum range. You still have glycogen storage that you're burning, so it's not forcing a process called gluconeogenesis where your body's breaking down protein. Uh, whereas if you extend that beyond 16 hours, and you deplete glycogen reserves, uh, you may begin uh, to have to force gluconeogenesis. So the idea is to get that window so that we maximize fat burning, minimize protein loss. And again, for most people, that's going to be somewhere uh, ideally between 12 and 16 hours. Now, there is another process, which is prolonged water-only fasting, where fasting is extended, uh, as we do in our clinic, up to 40 days. But this type of fasting needs to be done after a history exam laboratory evaluation and, and requires uh, medical supervision. So long-term water-only fasting can be extremely beneficial, but it needs to be done in a controlled setting. Intermittent fasting can be done by most anybody uh, without modifying their medications or ma manipulating uh, their current care cycle and may facilitate better weight control and uh, improved health. So when you say water fasting, you mean that's all a person's consuming for, for that long? Yeah, the complete abstinence of all substances except water, and it does need to be done in an environment of complete rest. Again, if you go beyond that period of time where you've depleted your glycogen stores and continue to maintain high levels of activity, whether it's muscle activity or brain activity, the only way the body can get that extra needed glucose is through breaking down protein. So we don't recommend doing that unless you're in a resting state, in which case the majority of calories are derived from fat. And in fact, not only are they derived from fat, but they're preferentially derived from visceral fat, the fat that accumulates around the abdomen and in the organs and is thought to be associated with inflammation and disease. So we've done a study here at the True North Health Center where we've actually been able to show that visceral fat is preferentially mobilized uh, during water-only fasting in a period of rest, so that a person might lose 20% of, say, their body uh, fat, their, their adipose tissue, but they may lose 40, 50% of their visceral fat load. And so uh, it may be that fasting is going to turn out to be a very effective way of getting rid of some of this visceral fat that is thought to be so health-compromising. Yeah. Interesting. Is there a particular water that you use? I mean, there's so many options. Spring water, distilled, reverse osmosis, and of course the popular alkaline water. Is there a better type of water, or does that not matter? Well, I think the most important thing is that it be, be pure water. So the, the most pure water would be like rainwater that if the environment wasn't polluted, that would be distilled water. Um, but you can also use reverse osmosis or other types of mechanical filtration to eliminate some of the uh, products that are commonly found in municipal water, the heavy metals, the hydrogenated halocarbons that form from chlorine interacting with organic material, etc. So just some highly purified water, we use uh, distilled water, and uh, that seems to work the best for uh, patients that are adapting to the fasting state. Great. And you've done extensive work with people that have high blood pressure that improve after, I guess, the water fast. Is it lasting when they go back and introduce food? Well, yeah, we did a study with 178 consecutive patients that had high blood pressure. And um, all uh, of those patients were able to achieve pressure low enough to eliminate medication. And for those patients willing to do things like continue to eat and live well, they're able to sustain that normal blood pressure uh, indefinitely. So we have good long-term outcome data on uh, patients that are able to sustain normal blood pressure without medications, but it does require, you know, doing things like eating healthily, uh, getting moderate exercise and enough rest. So 
you know, health results from healthful living. If you want people to get healthy, they have to be willing to, to pay the price. Uh, so for people that, it's just like obesity. You can't cure obesity, but you can manage it. So you can lose the weight and keep it off. But if you go back to eating greasy, fatty, processed garbage food, you're going to get fat again. And the same things with blood pressure. If you go back to the poor diet choices, including the high animal food, the salt intake, et cetera, you're going to see a return of your problem. But if you're willing to eat a whole plant food diet free of SOS, that is salt, oil, and sugar, uh, then you're going to be able to sustain normal blood pressure. And we've published a study with the largest effect size that's ever been shown in treating high blood pressure in humans with an average effect size of 60 points in systolic blood pressure in stage 3 hypertension. So the idea is that these effects are huge and sustainable. Yeah, I know a lot of authors I've had on the show advocate combining a ketogenic diet with intermittent fasting. So it sounds like you're not a fan of the popular keto diet, which advocates consuming animal products like beef and bacon. So the high-protein, high-fat diets, although may have some short-term uh, appeals in terms of temporary weight loss, etc., may not be the best long-term sustainable diet. Uh, high animal fat, high animal protein diets, we already know what happens when you do that. Although there's improvement by getting rid of refined carbohydrates, you also have to get rid of excess animal foods, particularly refined animal foods, the dairy products and other, other things that are so compromising to health. So we have to be careful, though, because what's good for short-term, for example, weight loss or what's good for short, uh, short-term athletic performance may not necessarily be the diet that's best for sustaining long-term health. We're interested not only in life expectancy, that is how long people are expected to live, but more importantly, healthy life expectancy. What type of diet is going to allow them to live into advanced age without having to find themselves unable to talk or move, lying in some nursing home bed waiting for people to come and change their diaper because they've had a stroke or cardiac event uh, or developed uh, cancer? And it appears to me that the best type of diet for long-term health is a whole plant food diet that's free of the chemicals that we add to food, including salt, oil, and sugar. That's why we call it an SOS-free diet. Yeah, great point. You know, when it comes to weight loss, let's talk about that. You know, there was this old belief that if you deprive the body of food, it's going to pack on more fat later when you finally eat again. Share with us why this rebound belief is outdated and no longer true. Well, it is true. Whatever you do, if you go on any deprivation diet and then follow it with a highly processed diet, you're going to gain your fat back. As I said, you can't cure obesity, you manage it. But what we found with fasting is very interesting. First of all, the weight that's lost in fasting will include fat as well as protein, water, fiber, and glycogen. The weight that's regained after fasting, if you're eating a whole plant food SOS-free diet, is water, glycogen, fiber, and protein, not fat. In fact, fat continues to go down even as the scale weight goes up as you rehydrate. And again, that is sustainable if people are willing to continue a healthy diet and exercise program. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, my window of fasting is usually 14 hours a day. I have breakfast around 9 a.m. I don't eat past 5 or 6. And on the weekends, I often just do a 24-hour fast where I just drink lemon water. And my question to you is during this, these times that I fast, my brain seems to become sharper and more in tune. Share how starving the body can create improvement in mental clarity. You'd think it would be the opposite effect. Well, you know, fasting actually, uh, initially, uh, depending on if people are withdrawing from highly addictive nervous system stimulants like caffeine, et cetera, can be, uh, you know, intense and sometimes uncomfortable. But once the withdrawal from the drugs and some of the dietary excess is gone, people do get increased mental clarity. In fact, it's interesting. I have a patient who uh, writes screenplays, and he uh, almost, almost all of his best work has been done in the fasting state. He'll often come and uh, yeah. do a long fast, right, because he finds it actually enhances his uh, 
creative abilities. And many people have found that if they fast before exams and other things, they'll actually function better. Yeah, I mean, I've get, I have more energy, I get more done. It's interesting. It's like you'd think the opposite. I mean, common sense is, you know, we eat food for fuel, and then it gives us energy to you yeah, know, It's not always intuitively obvious, because some of the food that people are eating to give themselves, quote, energy, are things like refined carbohydrates. And although you will get a short burst of energy as insulin goes up and blood sugars are driven down, your cognitive capacities and your muscular activity levels are diminished. And so, again, anytime there's stimulation, there's compensatory depression. And so, it's sometimes the increased uh, energy isn't just the effects of fasting, but getting rid of the negative effects of having people's blood sugars bouncing all over the place because they're living on refined carbohydrates. You know, 80 or 90%, depending on the person's uh, carbohydrates, come from refined carbohydrates, so flours and sugars and highly processed foods. I think all of us are, are recommending that these types of refined carbohydrates be eliminated. The only debate is what percentage of calories should come from fat, protein, and whole plant food complex carbohydrates. In the diets that we recommend, uh, you're getting about 10 to 12% of calories from protein, 15 to 18% of calories from fat, and the balance coming from whole plant food minimally processed complex carbohydrates. Yeah, that's a good protocol. What about fruit? Where does that fall? I have so many authors coming on the show that telling us fruit contains sugar, therefore it causes inflammation and should be avoided at all costs. What's your take on consuming fruit? Well, the fact is fruits today are not the same natural foods that we might have had in the world of our ancient ancestors. These are hybridized foods that are very high in sugar, relatively lower in minerals. So eating whole fresh fruit, I think, is an acceptable uh, component in the diet for most people. Um, however, once we start processing those foods, uh, just like with other uh, processed issues, you get into trouble. For example, if you just eat whole oranges, you'll eat three or four oranges and eventually you'll reach satiety. You feel full, you don't need any more. But if you drink orange juice, you can consume six oranges worth of uh, juice and still be looking for more. So it's much easier to overeat when you remove the fiber and highly processed foods. So we recommend when fruit is used, it be whole fresh fruit, not dried fruit, not fruit juices, not highly processed uh, fruit sugars. And when you do that, you dramatically reduce the amount of uh, sugar per volume. The other thing that we do when we eat fruit, we often encourage people to include high water content greens, so lettuce, celery, cucumbers, and the higher fiber content tends to slow down the rate with which that sugar is absorbed so you don't get as much uh, insulin balance and other issues that come from eating too much um, of a good thing. So fruit's included in the diet, but it is used uh, with, with, you know, in balance with large amounts of raw and cooked vegetables uh, to to make sure that the diet is balanced out. Great, and also probably berries that are more uh, you know more fiber, like the the the, the blueberries, strawberries, stuff like that, mm -hmm. would be probably better than a gr than a grape, right? That's I agree that you know these these fruits that have a, a lower glycemic index uh, tend to be even better tolerated, particularly for sensitive people. We have a lot of diabetics and other patients that you really have to limit how much of the simple fruits are included in the diet in preference to more vegetable based materials. Right. What about people that are into daily vigorous exercise? Should they skip the gym during their times of fasting, or is that actually a good time to exercise? Well, there is some evidence that on this 16-hour fasting, 8-hour feeding window, that exercising before that first meal in the morning may maximize fat burning and minimize um, uh, protein degradation. So uh, the one recommendation is to incorporate some uh, vigorous exercise uh, in those uh, morning hours, and then just delaying uh, uh, breakfast until you've completed your routine. 
Yeah, yeah, so that's a good good point. I've had a lot of that question come out. Um, also, another question I get from female listeners that are dealing with menopause-related weight gain and all the side effects that come with it, can fasting help them improve hormonal imbalances? Yeah, it turns out that the estradiol hormone, that active estrogen hormone, normally breaks down to something called estriol and is eliminated in the urine. And what breaks it down includes uh, liver function and specifically microbiome, the bacteria that live in the gut. And, you know, the, the bacteria that live in the gut are interesting. You have about five pounds of bacteria uh, and organisms living in your intestinal tract. They're an important part of your defense systems. There's about a thousand strains, and they keep each other in balance. And what they give off uh, can profoundly affect your health. In other words, these are living creatures eating, drinking, and defecating inside you right now. And what they're pooling inside you depends on what you feed them. If you, for example, people that are on very high meat diets um, have a completely different microbiome than people that are on plant-based diets. And if you are on a high meat diet with the, that type of bacteria, you get a lot of TMA, which becomes TMAO, which is trimethylamine oxidase. And it's thought to be why meat eaters get so much more cancer of the colon and heart disease and other issues, because uh, some of these chemicals are irritating. If you eat uh, plant-soluble uh, uh, fibers from sweet potatoes and vegetables and whatnot, you get you know, vitamin K and fertilizer. So the, the idea is that you want the right kind of bacteria and you want them, the byproducts of that bacteria to be health-promoting uh, fertilizer, not toxic waste. And we believe that a whole plant food diet that's free of these refined carbohydrates uh, provides the best environment for normalizing microflora. And we can judge that not just by uh, the research that we've been doing, uh, including with Washington University, but also by the clinical outcomes. We treat a lot of patients with autoimmune diseases like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and uh, irritable bowel syndrome and related uh, digestive disturbances that respond dramatically well to this combination of fasting followed by a health-promoting diet. Yeah, good point. Yeah, are there any people that, that maybe shouldn't fast, like uh, type 1 diabetics, or, or still are they able to? Is there like a certain contraindication for those that shouldn't endure it? Well, yes. Uh, people, most people can do this intermittent fasting where they limit their feeding window to 12 to 16 hours, and they often get significant benefit from that. The longer-term medically supervised water-only fasting, there are a number of contraindications. For example, people that are pregnant or lactating, if you fast when you're lactating, you're going to lose milk production. Anorexia nervosa, neurological condition, uh, although people want to fast, isn't a good idea. Type 1 diabetics don't fast well because they don't produce uh, insulin, and you need insulin to adapt the fast fasting process. People that have recently had stroke, myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolism, DVTs, these people are often on anticoagulant therapy, which you don't want to just arbitrarily discontinue and wouldn't be safe to uh, do long-term water fasting on, and including people with cardiac instability or severe kidney disease, or there are certain defects like uh, porphyria or um, medium-chain acetylcoenzyme dehydrogenase deficiency. Uh, these patients wouldn't be able to fast because they don't produce the enzymes necessary to break down fatty acids. Obviously, if people have deficiency, depletion issues, if they have inadequate reserves, or they're on medications that can't be discontinued, they would not be good candidates uh, for water-only fasting. You'd have to do a modified program in order to adapt to their medication use. And I would want to mention that uh, you've got to be really careful when you start doing longer-term fasting, particularly if you're on medications. You definitely want to make sure you talk to your physician about what your plans are and make sure you don't do something that's going to compromise uh, your health. 
Yeah, good point. You touched briefly about something earlier on. I want to just reiterate, you talked about fat loss with fasting, particularly the dangerous kind known as visceral fat. Share with us why, you know, that's different. People that get that fat under their arms or they're squeezing on their belly, that's not really the important fat to lose. It's, it's much deeper. Well, you know, the thing is, there shouldn't really be excess visceral fat. The only reason there is is we eat so much, the body just has run out of places to put fat. And so what's exciting is in fasting, the body will break down tissues in inverse proportion to their needs of the body. So it's not like you lose 10% of your weight and you lose 10% of your tumor or 10% of your visceral fat. That, that visceral fat is preferentially mobilized. And so you may, in a 10-day fast, you know, we've, we've just been collecting this data on a study we're doing. You know, people are losing as much as 50% of that visceral fat store. It's much faster than, say, equivalent... Uh, uh, visceral fat mobilization is demonstrated in keto diets or other types of dietary restriction programs where the ratios of visceral fat to adipose tissue um, are, are much less. So we do believe that for visceral fat mobilization, fasting may have some utility. I'd like to point out, though, if people are willing to adopt a diet and exercise, they can lose their fat. It's not as rapid as happens uh, with fasting, but it definitely uh, is the healthiest way to address if weight loss is the only concern. Our focus is healthy eating, that is a whole plant food SOS-free diet, appropriate exercise, including exercises that will in- induce aerobic um, activity, so something that makes you breathe hard and sweat and uh, helps you maximize uh, fat burning. I love that SOS-free. So share again what the SOS means again for the listeners. It's the chemicals that are added to food that fool the satiety mechanisms in the brain and those chemicals include salt, oil, and sugar. Salt, oil, and sugar are not foods. These are chemicals added to food to stimulate that dopamine production in our brain. We talk about that in our book, The Pleasure Trap, which you know, it's the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. It's the reason people are overweight and develop the condition, the epidemic that's killing people all around us, and that's metabolic syndrome. You know, if you think about heart disease and cancer, and diabetes, we all know that metabolic syndrome is one of the major risk factors. Metabolic syndrome is where your, if your waist circumference is elevated, high triglycerides, elevated blood pressure, elevated blood sugar levels, if three or more of those variables is high, you have metabolic syndrome. But it also is associated with increased risk of dying from infectious diseases, including COVID-19. If you look at the people that are dying, oftentimes metabolic syndrome is one of the risk factors. So one thing I think we should be doing is we want to reduce our risk of dying from infectious disease or heart disease or cancer, diabetes, is let's resolve metabolic syndrome. Let's, let's lose the visceral fat. Let's bring our blood lipids under control, drop the blood pressure, um, increase our HDL levels. And you do that with a health-promoting diet, exercise, and uh, if appropriate, medically supervised water-only fasting, and for almost everybody, intermittent fasting. Fantastic. Oh, shared some great information. Time flew by. We did get to a lot of stuff. This is great. Great information. Hopefully our listeners took good notes. Appreciate you being here. To learn more about Dr. Goldhammer or to get your copy of his best-selling book, The Pleasure Trap, go to truenorthhealth.com. And while there, be sure and check out the many resources that he offers on how you can benefit from fasting. You can follow Dr. Goldhammer on Facebook at True North Health for my daily Facebook and Twitter 
your post. I'm at Dr. David Friedman on Instagram. It's Dr. D. Friedman. If you heard Dr. Goldhammer share something today that would benefit somebody you know, which I'm sure you did, send them a link to this podcast. It's available to yourgoodhealthradio.com or radiomd.com and peruse our podcast library. Share these segments with friends, family, coworkers, and on social media. This information is too important to keep to yourself. As I always say, sharing is caring. You can also subscribe to future podcasts at iHeartRadio and iTunes. More to come. Stay tuned and stay well.